This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, there are three stories of dragons and serpents of the ancient world. You'll see that it's never too early to teach your newborn how to shoot a bow and arrow, and that if you're fighting a dragon, there's really nothing better than a bear army that you've bribed with cake. Then, on the Creature of the Week, you'll see why you should not get into a sumo match with a child on the road at night. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 44, Here Be Dragons. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that you might not have heard, but really should. This week, there are 3.5 stories of monsters, mainly dragons and serpents. They come from Greek mythology, Norse mythology, and the lives of the saints. We're going to get started in Greek mythology, so that of Zeus, Hera, Poseidon, Hades, Athena, and all of them. Leto needed to find a place where she could give birth, as yet another human female focus of Zeus's ever-shifting affections, she had, like so many others before her, come under the scrutiny of Hera. Not choosing to mess around and turn her into a cow or something stupid like that, Hera just sent a giant snake after her to eat her if she ever tried to give birth to the child she was carrying. She had been forbidden from giving birth on Earth or any island in the sea. She had been standing on the beach, looking out onto the sea and lamenting her fortunes when she felt something when she felt something picking her up before she knew what was happening she was flying over the mediterranean sea the wind was carrying her zeus had come to her aid when she needed him most she flew for an hour or so until the wind began to lower her then the waters parted poseidon zeus had caught in a favor Poseidon pushed the waters back until they revealed a large rock floating in the sea. The wind gently lowered Leto onto the surprisingly dry rock. Poseidon raised the rock from the sea until it was just a wide, desolate place. It wasn't dry land, and it wasn't technically an island because it was just a floating rock. She had found a loophole in Hera's punishment, and she would be able to have her baby in peace and safety. Sitting on the flat rock, with her baby coming, she really hoped that this was the case, because she saw a wave rising. Something was underneath. Something was coming for her. It was the serpent. Its name was Python. The serpent was massive and arced out of the water. It had come from the mainland. She saw its triangular head and mouth full of teeth snapping at her. But she breathed a sigh of relief when she saw that there was nothing it could do. It couldn't attack her here. As she watched Python retreat... Leda knew that for the first time in a month, she was safe. She might have been able to relax, too, if her water hadn't broken the next moment. After hours of agony, she reached for a sharp rock when the child came out. She had to sever the umbilical cord. I can imagine few things more difficult or terrifying than giving birth to a baby by yourself on essentially a desert non-island, but Leto did it. Now, she needed to do it again. As it turned out, she had been pregnant with twins. She suffered the umbilical cord, lay back, and wept in terror. She couldn't do it. Then, she felt tiny, tiny hands softly comforting her. It was her daughter, her daughter who was only minutes old. 
the baby would be named Artemis. And apparently, she would also serve as a midwife for her mother and help Leto give birth to Apollo, the girl's twin brother. Artemis, in the end, was nine days older than Apollo. That's right, Leto labored for nine days straight there on the beach, more flat rock. There's speculation that Hera kidnapped the goddess of childbirth, Ilithia, when she saw Leto give birth to Artemis with relative ease. Holding her babies after over a week of labor, Leto could finally smile. She had been through some of the worst punishment a human could go through, and she had found herself stronger than she knew. Four days later, Apollo, who had been given the nectar of ambrosia, was firing an arrow for the first time. Kids grow up so fast. The next morning, Apollo left Delos, the desolate rock where he had been born less than a week prior. He had something he needed to do. A few days later, Apollo scaled a cliffside with his adorable, chubby baby hands. He had the bow slung over his back, and he sat down on the sharp rocks resting his cute little feet. Feeling good from one of his many naps that day, he took out an arrow, wiping the spit up from his mouth. He regulated his breathing as he pulled the arrow back. He would only have one shot at this before it was nap time again. He had found it. Python, the monster who had terrorized his mother for weeks before he was born, and he would kill it. He saw the monster. It was massive. He would need to put the arrow square into its head to kill it instantly, or else a wet diaper wouldn't be his only problem. He saw the serpent slithering along a path, followed it with the arrow, and exhaled. And Apollo missed. I mean, he was less than two weeks old, so you really can't blame him. Python moved his head at the last moment, and the arrow sunk deep into his body. Regardless, Python did not come after his infant assassin. He was surprised and wounded, and so he took off slithering as fast as he could down the path. Apollo cursed and put the bow away. At least he would be able to follow the blood to see where the monster went. For the time being, though, he would need to find a way to swaddle himself. It was nap time. It was pandemonium. The Oracle at Delphi was under attack by a baby. Back then, what was known as the Delphic Oracle that would be visited by Hercules, Aegeus, and many others was a cave. It was an oracle of Gaia, basically Mother Earth, and it was guarded by Python. In some places, the oracle isn't guarded by a male dragon, but a female dragon named Delphine. Robert Graves has called her Python's mate, while other stories don't include Python and just have Apollo fighting Delphine. It doesn't matter, though, because there, in the center of their world, Apollo walked into the cave that would eventually come to be known as the Temple of Apollo at Delphi. It would be his oracle, and today he would get rid of the snake. Python reared up. The serpent was wounded, but when he saw baby Apollo and the arrows, Python knew who had attacked him earlier. Now seeing that it wasn't only just a kid, but an infant, it wasn't anything to be afraid of. Or so he thought, until three more arrows sunk into his body. Baby Apollo was unfazed and walked towards the altar. With each step, he let another arrow fly. He had missed once, on the top of Mount Parnassus, but he wouldn't miss again. Python, 
the massive beast that could see the future and who had been a terror of the pre-Olympian world, ended up cowering behind the altar, riddled with arrows and pouring blood. Little baby Apollo stood atop the altar, took an arrow in each hand, and leapt down upon the beast. Minutes later, Python was dead. The Oracle of Gaia cowered in a corner, speckled with blood from the fight. Apollo nodded, plucking his arrows from the corpse. It took the little baby Apollo hours to drag the corpse of the snake outside, but some sources say he buried it, and others say he kept the bones for his future temple. Killing someone on the shrine of Mother Earth was exactly as bad as you think it would be. Apollo was ordered to complete the same sort of purification rituals that Hercules, Bellerophon, and others were forced to do. He did so, and he also had to institute some games in honor of Python. The Pythian Games, one of four such Panhellenic games, another of which were the Olympic Games, began. Walking back, presumably just a few days older than a week or two, Apollo had one more thing left to do. In the past few days, he had learned how to see the future from Pan, and he came to the cave where he slew Python and found the oracle, presumably still trying to get serpent blood out of her clothes. He said that from now on, this temple will be dedicated to Apollo. The oracle, his priestess at the temple in Delphi, would be called the Pythia. She would be a different woman for each generation, but she would be the way that Apollo spoke prophecies to the ancient world. For hundreds upon hundreds of years, people from all over the world would visit the priestess of Apollo, called the Delphic Oracle. She would sometimes give them cryptic non-answers, sometimes straightforward warnings, but for over 1,000 years, the oracles would give answers that would shape the world around them. If you're interested in some of the recorded sayings of the Delphic Oracle, and these are mostly historical too, not like the sayings to Hercules or Aegeus, check out the discussion post on the site. Next up is the story of another serpent dragon. It's the story of the time Thor went fishing. Thor was angry. This was nothing new, but it stemmed from his last visit to Jotunheim, the land of the giants. Utgarda Loki had humiliated him, making him look like he couldn't even wrestle a house cat. Thor was great at wrestling house cats. The giant made him look stupid in front of all the other giants. And Loki. He finally let it go. There was nothing Thor could do about the humiliation, and he knew it. There was still one question that sat in his mind like a house cat and refused to move. According to Utgarda Loki, Thor had actually wrestled the monstrous serpent, Jormungandr, that lived in the oceans and circled the world. It was also one of Loki's children that he had with a giantess, that's covered in episode 9, and it attacking would signal the beginning of the end of everything. Ragnarok. A question plagued Thor after his most recent trip to Jotunheim. If he could lift the serpent from the ocean, as he was told he did, could he fight it? Could he kill it and save everyone? He stroked his red beard, tried to put the thought out of his mind for about 10 minutes, but when he couldn't, he began packing. So, I'm not sure if Thor actually has access to magic in order to shapeshift, or if he's good at disguises or not good at disguises, and everyone just gives him a pass because he's Thor, but it's said he disguised himself as a young, small boy, and ran from Asgard, the home of Odin, Loki, Freya, and others, without his goats or anything. He did take his hammer, though, which, in Norse mythology, isn't some massive block of metal, but small enough to comfortably fit in Thor's cloak. Days later, 
the little boy arrived in Midgard, our world, the world of the humans. He knew where he was going. He found the house of a giant on the coast, near the wide ocean, where Thor had been told he lifted the Midgard serpent from the water. A giant named Mir answered and was surprised to see a young boy, whether because of the customs of hospitality or just because the plot demanded it, Hymir took Thor inside and let him stay the night. Hymir was also the father of someone we've seen on the podcast before, Tyre. If you remember also back in episode 9, he's the member of the Aesir who lost his hand to Fenrir, one of Loki's other children. Hymir, the giant, lived a simple life on the coast, keeping livestock and fishing for his food, and was apparently happy to take the occasional unaccompanied miner out on his boat with him. Hymir warned the boy that this wasn't just some relaxing fishing trip. Hymir fished far, far to the north, where you were more likely to see icebergs than other boats. And really, you're such a puny little kid. Are you sure you can handle it? Thor's hand was shaking underneath his cloak, sweaty on his hammer. He really badly wanted to bring the hammer down hard on this giant's forehead. It had been so long. It would feel so good. But no, he wouldn't get into a fight and kill his friend's dad, when there were far more exotic and exciting things to kill, like the Midgard Serpent. He told Ymir, through gritted teeth, that they would be fine. And the giant shrugged. Get some sleep, strange child. They would leave before dawn. The next morning, Ymir shook Thor awake. Down at the boat, Thor asked the giant about bait, but the giant told him that he needed to bring his own. Thor snapped his fingers. He had just the thing. Thor walked back behind the house, where he had seen some oxen grazing. They were still sleeping, but the ten-year-old went to the biggest ox and ripped its head off. The other oxen began panicking, and Thor shoved the head in a bag and walked back to the boat. Hymir had tried to shove off without Thor, but the ten-year-old had caught him and jumped aboard. Hymir remarked that, Oh, great, you made it. Wow, also nice job with the bait. That looks like a pretty full bag. What'd you end up getting? Hymir was angry, not because the kid he had agreed to take aboard had beheaded his favorite ox. He didn't know about that yet. No, he was mad because they were dangerously far away from land. He had tried to get the boy to stop, but the kid rode like someone three times his size. That combined with the hateful glance the kid gave Hymir every time the giant tried to stop him, and, well, the giant sat down to see where the kid was taking them. The kid rode and rode. And now Hymir was beginning to get scared. They had rowed out past even the icebergs. Now, there was nothing in these waters. Nothing but him. Jormagander, the Midgard Serpent, swam in these waters at the edge of the world. Somewhere, down in the cold darkness of the unimaginable depths, was the monster. Hymir was scared it would come for them. Thor was counting on it. The ten-year-old looked off on the horizon and saw a wave forming. He threw down the oars and told the giant to get the hooks ready. The giant was paralyzed with fear, so Thor shot him a nasty glance and grabbed one of the hooks himself. He took the bait out of his bag, and Hymir was luckily too scared to notice that it was the head of his prized ox. Thor shoved the hook up the head and threw it out in the water. He wrapped the rope around his left arm. He laid back, braced himself on the boat, and waited. Hymir was white with fear, but then the wave disappeared. Hymir could finally breathe. Maybe it would let them go, but 
than he felt it. The ship lurched as deep below them, the Midgard serpent took the bait. Thor had waited until the serpent bit and swallowed the bait, and then he pulled. The Midgard serpent, the one that encircles the whole world, stopped in the water. Thor didn't waste any time. He began pulling at the thing before it realized what was happening, before it began fighting back against him. Every few feet, he would wrap the line around his left arm. The serpent began fighting back, but by then it didn't matter. Thor smiled, sweat beating on his forehead. He had the beast. Soon, the waters frothed as Thor wrenched the monster from the ocean below. Thor saw it, and it was the stuff of nightmares. Under just a few feet of water, still partially cloaked in shadow, Thor saw the eyes glowing in the darkness. It was three boat lengths in any direction. It was monstrous. And Thor had it. He smirked and pulled one more time, wrenching the monster to the surface. Thor looped the rope around his left arm and reached for his hammer. As he raised the hammer above his head, lightning struck. In an instant, the disguise of the 10-year-old evaporated, and it was Thor standing there in all of his glory, hammer above his head, ready to end the swimming, extinction-level event. For most of Thor's struggle, Hymir had been, fortunately, too scared of the monster to move. Unfortunately, he had not stayed that way. Seeing the 10-year-old almost pulling the monster aboard his rowboat, combined with the stinging, burning poison that the Midgard serpent was flinging everywhere, the giant knew that he had to be the adult in the boat. He fumbled to get his little fishy knife and had crept over to the 10-year-old as the Midgard serpent was coming out of the water. Thor didn't notice because he was too busy raising his hammer above his head, slash looking cool. But in one strike of the surprisingly sharp bait knife, the rope was severed. When Thor pulled the rope to bring the serpent up to greet his hammer, he found it wasn't attached to a massive sea monster and flew back in the rowboat. Thor scrambled to his feet. He was confused. What happened? Then he saw Hymir standing there with his bait knife, clearly very pleased with himself. Thor yelled and threw Mjolnir, his hammer, down into the depths after the Midgard serpent, but he knew it was hopeless. The monster was already gone, and it was all the giant's fault. Hymir was puzzled. Oh, hey, Thor? You're my son's friend. Hey, where did that crazy 10-year-old go? Thor, what's wrong? Giving Hymir a look that spelled death for entire giant wedding celebrations, Thor palmed his face and threw the giant bodily out of the boat yelling that he could swim back. Thor sat on the bench and reached for the oars. He wished that he had his hammer. Almost on cue, his hammer returned to him, bursting through the bottom of the rowboat, back from its trip to hit the Midgard Serpent. Thor sat, fuming, as the boat filled with water around him. It looked like both he and Hymir would be swimming back. He sighed as the water got up to his chest. He really needed to stop hanging out with giants. Next up will be the story of St. George and the Dragon. It's one that's been told and retold in many different cultures, but it originates in Roman times. That will be right after this. This week's episode is brought to you by Casper, an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Okay, so I've had a Casper mattress for a couple of months now, and it is no joke, the best mattress I've ever had. My wife and I get amazing sleep on it, and I'm not just saying that. I had a friend from out of town come in, who I haven't seen in a while, and who also has a Casper, 
and we had a legitimately in-depth conversation about how awesome these mattresses are. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. And as soon as you feel it, you'll see what I mean. It is perfect. And you can try it with free shipping to the US and Canada for 100 nights risk-free in your home. And if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. No more awkwardly laying on mattresses in stores while the salesperson watches you. You get to try it in your home and you can send it back if you don't like it. It's made in America and Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. And you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com legends and using offer code legends. Terms and conditions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. I always make the mistake of waiting until I'm super hungry to start thinking about dinner. And then it's either the same old thing again or mediocre takeout. Blue Apron is cool because they send you weekly meals with professionally designed recipes. Everything is pre-portioned and measured. It's fresh and sustainably sourced. And not only does it taste way better, but it probably takes even less time than that mediocre takeout you're going to get. If you like to cook, the recipes will help you expand your talents and show you some new ingredients and techniques. If you aren't that great of a cook, you really can't get a simpler recipe. It has step-by-step instructions and professional pictures. At the end of it, not only do you have a gourmet meal, but you did it yourself or with friends and family and had a genuinely fun time and learned something new. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com legends. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com legends. Blue Apron a better way to cook. All right, now back to the show. The next story is a famous one. It's from Roman times, and it's the story of St. George and the Dragon. The year was 300 AD, and the Roman Empire was surviving. The empire had just weathered the crisis of the third century, marked by plague, economic depression, extreme civil and really uncivil unrest, waka waka, that included but was not limited to way too many assassinations of emperors and the empire itself being broken into three pieces and reunited. The crisis years were bad for the Romans, but it was over. Only a hundred-ish plus years until everything falls apart permanently. George, as he's called, was born at the tail end of the crisis in Cappadocia, which was a Roman province in modern-day Turkey. George's father died, and he apparently moved with his mother back to her native Palestine, where he joined the legions. He rose in the ranks to become a military tribune, which was an officer. It's also very important to point out that George was a Christian. Now, approximately 300 years after the birth of Christ, the Christian church had been in worse spots, but it had also been in better ones. For the past 270-ish years, it had grown to a religion that spanned the empire, The Roman response varied from disdainful disregard to violent persecution, depending on the emperor and the economic and cultural conditions at the time. At the time of George's birth, it was in another phase of annoyed disregard, but not persecution, and thus why George, a vocal Christian, could rise in the ranks. George had been on campaign with the son of one of the tetrarchs, or one of the four emperors at the time, a young man by the name of Constantine. George found himself as a courier dispatched to modern-day Libya, And that's how he chanced upon her. He saw a princess in a wedding dress, tied to a stake next to a sheep, screaming. George slowed his horse, since women tied to stakes in the middle of nowhere screaming their lungs out were 
thankfully, not the norm even in late antiquity, he decided to investigate. What George did not know was that there was a dragon on its way. That's probably why the woman was screaming to leave her alone. I'll back up to explain. As it happened from time to time in the ancient world, there was a dragon living in a pond near a city. It was the poison breath variety, like Fafnir, not the fire-breathing kind. And this one couldn't talk or fly, just to let you know what you should be looking for in your dragon field guide. The brave and hardy citizens of the town of Silene, where the dragon lived and occasionally helped himself to livestock or peasants, well, the people did not like having such a dangerous beast nearby. They gathered with all their weapons, found that dragon, and promptly ran away. Brave or not, they were a bunch of merchants, farmers, and maybe noblemen in the face of a poison-breathing dragon. You can't really blame them. You can blame them for what happens next, though. When it comes to fighting dragons, if at first you don't succeed, feed it livestock until you run out of livestock. The people of Selene did just that, feeding the dragon pairs of sheep until they began to get worried, seeing that their days were numbered by just how many sheep they had left. Then, someone had the brilliant idea of binding a man and putting him out there with the sheep to supplement the dragon's diet and buy them a little more time. A few days later, they came to their senses. This was terrible, the people of Selene said, to be sacrificing the city's men and women to a dragon. They should be sacrificing the children to a dragon, seeing as it meant that they would not have to be bound and flung before a hungry dragon. All the adults in town agreed that this was a great idea. That evening, they drew lots, and the first child was set out with one of the sheep. This went on for way, way too long, with the drawing of lots falling on the rich and poor, highborn and lowborn alike. Except for the king, with his one daughter, that that one daughter had not been sacrificed to the dragon was a bit suspicious to everyone in town. By now, everyone in the city knew at least someone who had to give a child to the dragon. And so an angry mob came together to have a pleasant and reasonable discussion with the king. They told him that because his daughter had not been killed yet, it was obvious he was using his power to keep her out of the drawing. I can imagine the king trying to give an impromptu lesson on how probability worked. What with there being thousands of children who were not his daughter and just one princess, but I don't think that whatever he said went over well, because the mob threatened to burn down the city and not feed the dragon. The king agreed to their very unreasonable demands, on the condition that he could have eight more days with his daughter. The king, kind of sweetly, kind of weirdly, dressed his daughter in a wedding dress to go be tied to the stake and eaten by the dragon. His reasoning was that he would never get to see her wedding day so he would at least get to see her in a wedding dress before she died. And that brings us back to George, riding along and seeing the rare sight of a woman tied to a stake in her wedding dress. And she was telling him to go, now. George said, okay, but why are you weeping and tied up in a wedding dress? And what's with the sheep? She explained everything to George as quickly as she could so he could get out of there before the dragon came. She said she wouldn't leave even if he untied her. She said she would do this for her people. She would die for her people. Whatever George had decided to do, it didn't matter because he heard a roar behind him. It had four stubby legs and it was long and snake-like, like Fafnir. The dragon began to run. George turned his horse and rushed the dragon. And just as he approached it, he flipped his spear around and brought it down hard, piercing the dragon's mouth from top to bottom and pinning it to the ground. 
The dragon strained against the spear, but it eventually stopped. And yeah, that's it. That's the whole dragon fight. The dragon sat there in hateful complacency, staring at George. It knew that it had been beaten. The princess asked George to untie her and also take off his belt. He complied, and they wrapped it around the dragon's neck. They wrenched the spear from the ground, but kept it skewering the mouth shut. This gave them control and kept the poison breath from doing poison breath's one and only job. The people of Selene were surprised to see the dragon, the sheep, a Roman officer, and the princess they all agreed should die approaching the city. They were surprised and alarmed when she didn't stop at a distance. And less surprised, but considerably more terrified when she entered the city, dragging the dragon along like a sad dog. I don't know if her plans were to find the people that insisted she go and give them a taste of their own medicine in the form of giving the dragon a taste of them, but George was the first to talk. He told the city that had not heard the gospel that if they believed in God and Jesus Christ and were baptized, then he would slay the dragon. I'm not so sure about the other side of that coin. If they didn't choose to be baptized, would he let the dragon go? And how much of a choice is it really if someone's waving a giant poisonous dragon in your face? Regardless, we don't see the other side of things because everyone agreed that, yes, they would be baptized. I think George actually waited around until 15,000 men, in addition to an uncounted number of women and children, were baptized. Then, he took his sharp Roman sword, turned to the dragon that had been hanging around for the past few hours, and lopped off its head. At the end of the day, it took four full ox carts to transport the dragon's poisonous remains out of the city. Over the next several months, George trained priests, helped to build a church, and apparently refused piles and piles of money from the king, instead insisting that it be given to the poor. He helped to make sure everything was on good footing, and then he knew he had to depart. He had to return to Constantine. One morning, George rode off toward the rising sun, away from Selene, never to return. George ended up leaving the legions shortly thereafter. Diocletian and some of his co-emperors decided that to return Rome to its former glory, they should go about persecuting entire religions, with Christians being the main targets. The next few years will be some of the bloodiest for Christians in Roman history. It will be known as the Great Persecution. It would claim many, many lives, including that of zealous, courageous George. It continued on for a few years before being deemed a failure and halting Christianity's spread. Less than 30 years later, Diocletian's failure would be complete when Constantine the Great took the purple, probably maybe converted to Christianity, and it became the favorite religion of the emperor. Of course, that's a simplistic view of Christianity in Rome, and we won't really be getting into that. The Great Persecution was the last one, and over the next 100 years or so, Christianity was more accepted into the wider Roman culture. The story of St. George isn't super historical. There was probably a St. George born in either Cappadocia or the region that had been called Palestine by the Romans. He was martyred, but that's where things stopped getting verifiable. Today's story came from the Golden Legend, written by an Italian man in the 13th century, nearly 900 years after the events supposedly took place. The legend was definitely known before that and spread all over the medieval Christian world. This story has been told in several cultures and it grew with the times. 
For example, most art depicts George as a crusader from the High Middle Ages, and not really as a Roman military tribune. That's, in part, because some crusaders said St. George and other warrior saints helped them in the Crusades. St. George became the patron saint of England in the Middle Ages, and his cross, the red cross on the white background, became representative of the English. It's still on the Union Jack, the flag of the UK, to this day. I have one more short story about a dragon slayer, and it's another saint. He's apparently one of the most prolific saintly dragon slayers of the Middle Ages. And yeah, there's a surprising amount of them in the legends. Unfortunately, I could only find a few details for him, but his story is absolutely amazing. His name is Magnus, and he was an Irish monk. He was a dragon slayer, a friend of bears, and the patron saint against caterpillars. I wish I could read German, but since I can't, I'm left with only summaries of his many, many fights with dragons. He would apparently walk around with a staff and a handful of other monks. When this questing party would learn of a nearby dragon, the other monks would hang back and pray, while St. Magnus, which is an awesome name by the way, would enter the caves. The stories range from Magnus simply banishing the dragon from the land to a more permanent solution of the holy man beating the dragons to death with his staff. Usually, it would be visible by the accompanying monks, or a child would hang out at the mouth of the cave, watching these very awesome yet barely described fights in order to remember it for posterity. That's how we know it's real. Magnus slew around 18 dragons in his lifetime, and there's one time when he took some pity on the beasts. Right after he got done beating its mother to death in front of him, Magnus looked down to see a nest and a baby dragon. Looking at his bloody staff, he decided not to, and he scooped up the nest, stepped over the body of the mother, and set the dragon down outside. The little guy was hungry. He commanded him to feed. On the mice, rats, and birds that had been plaguing the fields all summer, and it did. With the baby dragon zipping through the air and running through the fields, the people of Fusen in modern-day Germany enjoyed a bountiful harvest. So, I can't find an official explanation as to why Magnus is the patron saint against caterpillars. But my guess is that it's because he helped the town with their pest problem, and caterpillars are a type of pest. There's a super odd story of what happened to the dragon he saved. Apparently, it grew to adulthood, but it was a good dragon. It helped the people saw lumber and clear woodlands. Eventually, though, it wasn't satisfied with pests and began to treat itself to a calf or two. The people were not at all happy about this, and finding it asleep in the barn, snuck up on it and stabbed it. Its dragon blood wasn't poisonous and didn't give the power to understand birds, but it was delicious milk. Yep, whenever the attacker stabbed the friendly dragon, he found himself covered in the tastiest milk he'd ever tried. The people rejoiced and forgave the dragon, who was now worth 20 cows. The dragon, though, didn't forgive them. He left in a pouty huff and never returned. This leads us to the last story of Magnus. He was walking in the forest one day, trying to think of a way to help the local community. He turned a corner and was surprised to find himself looking into the face of a full-grown bear. Oh, hi, bear, Magnus said to this animal that he had never met before. I was just thinking of ways to help out the people in the village. Any ideas? The bear immediately turned and began clawing at the bottom of a tree. Yeah, I was just out on a walk, Magnus said. I don't have anything to dig. Would you be able to help me out? 
The bear paused. I'll give you some cake if you follow me back to the monastery, Magnus said. And the bear went to work clawing at the small tree until he had uprooted it. He dug until he revealed a vein of iron ore. Back at the monastery, the bear ate the cake that St. Magnus had given him. And Magnus told the workers in the village. Over the course of the next few weeks, a couple more bears came down from the mountains to help out and they revealed more and more veins of iron ore for more and more cakes. Iron is apparently still a resource for this area to this day. Then, word came that St. Magnus was needed. There were dragons, three of them. Magnus turned to his new bear friends and asked them for another favor. I can imagine St. Magnus walking into town like a humble and pious boss, flanked by three bears, kindly asking which way the dragons lived he was directed to the forest up ahead. He told the townspeople that he and the bears were going in and that they would do well to get away from the woods. Remember how I said I don't read German? Yeah, I wish I had the details concerning this fight. With three dragons on one side and a dragon slain saint with three bears on the other side, it sounds absolutely amazing, but I don't have the details. Sorry about that. We do know that Magnus and the bears killed the dragons. That wasn't good enough though. Magnus set the forest ablaze behind him to be sure that no little dragons survived this time. I can't imagine a more epic image than St. Magnus exiting the blazing forest with his three bears spotted in dragon's blood. Except that it said that, for some reason, the dragon's den blew up behind him. And I'm not joking at all about that. So yes, St. Magnus and his three warrior bears casually walked away from an explosion to cheering crowds after killing three dragons. That's it for this time. I have to mention that dragons in the Middle Ages were seen as sort of symbols and manifestations of devils and evil. So that's why so many monks and saints supposedly killed so many dragons. Next week, it's an episode of people making deals. We'll go back to Japanese folklore, as well as tell the much-requested story of Rumpelstiltskin. And you'll see how a king treats people doing him a favor by terrorizing them into hours of unpaid labor to do the impossible. I want to say thanks to Rebecca T.Y., Kendrea, Bobby the Dragon, Laugh Slash Cry, Jonesy Rhodes, Yim Flu, Chelsea Bouncy, Morgan Nam, Thubil, Eric the Red, New Walkin 22, Matt the Palm, Mazevedo, and Dragon Fairy for the reviews on iTunes. I'm not only incredibly grateful that you listen and like the show, but that you actually took the time to review it. Thank you so much. And if you'd like to leave a review, iTunes or the iOS podcast app are really good places for that. And you can find the show there at itunes.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a purse knitted from cat hair, you can get extra episodes, ad-free versions of this show, and source pack ebooks that won't drive my allergies absolutely insane. You can also get German Shepherd and Spaniel hair purses. Don't worry though, they also look disgusting. For more information on the membership, check out support.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is the Aobozu from Japanese folklore. And thanks to everyone on Twitter, and Adam in particular, for helping me out with the pronunciation. I'm sure it's still probably pretty off, but I appreciate everyone hopefully helping me get it in the ballpark. It means the blue monk. 
and just like it sounds, this creature is a little blue guy. Sometimes he has multiple eyes, sometimes he's huge. We're just gonna go with the little blue child-sized creature, since that seems to be the most accepted. He hangs out in a few places. In the evenings, he can be found in barley fields. You know who can also apparently be found in barley fields? Kids, up to no good after school. You know who's a delicious snack for this creature? Kids, up to no good after school. If you need any extra warning, kids, please stay away from little blue creatures in barley fields. Come evening time, they can be found on lonely roads and appear out of the shadows to solitary travelers. They ask questions for young women. They ask if she would like to hang by her neck. The answer to that for anyone is an obvious no, but you really need to be specific when it comes to talking to the blue monk. If the women say no, he will respect their desires and leave them alone. If she ignores the blue creep approaching her on the street at night, well, he will assume she wished to be hanged by the neck and he will attack her and hang her by the neck. Yeah. For men, it's not much better. He'll come up to them and challenge them to a sumo match. Even though we are all tempted to get in sumo matches with children on the road at night, just resist the urge to throw a blue child into a building. The blue monk is much denser than he looks, and you will lose. Many people have supposedly ended up on the ground with severe injuries after accepting this little blue child's challenge. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Other music is by Pottington Bear and Blue Dot Sessions. Links to even more music I used are in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.